Susan, good morning from New York City. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. You're calling me from the super hot UK, right? I am, yes. We are in our hottest period we've been in for a very long time. I wish I would have read this book uh, two weeks ago. I was out there in London for a wedding. We could have did this from a pub, so... Oh yeah, that would have been that would have been much more classically British. <laughs> uh, first of all, congratulations, your first book, and it's an absolute hit. Hell's Half Acre, the untold story of the Benders, a serial killer family on the American frontier. How awesome is it having your first book? It's really, it's really exciting. It's also quite overwhelming. Um, it's obviously been quite weird because of COVID. Um, it also came out in the States before it came out in the UK. Um, so I knew it was out and I was doing all this press for it in America, but I couldn't go and look at it in a bookstore, which was very weird. Um, so when it came out here at the end of May and like I did a physical launch for it and I can go and now see it on the shelf, I feel like, okay, it's it's actually out <laughs> instead of being kind of like, a, I know it's there, <laughs> but it's hard when you can't see it. <laughs> Have you seen anyone in public reading your book yet? No, I haven't. I've had lots of people um, online, like send me pictures mm -hmm. of them reading it um, with their pets, which is always very nice to see. Um, and, but in the UK, I think because it's an uh, American topic, um, it's less kind of like less people will pick it up over here. Um, I think if I actually saw someone reading it in public here, I would go totally insane and be very intense <laughs> to them about it. Would you approach, um, would you approach them? I think so, just because I'd be like, thanks so much for buying it. It's my first book. Like, it obviously means a lot um, when you're an unknown author as well, because um, I don't have any kind of big social media following or anything like that. Um, so for someone to pick it up, either it means that the booksellers have done a really good job um, or that they, you know, have like trusted enough that I might have written something interesting, even though nobody knows who I am. <laughs> You mentioned the social media. So I love True Crime Garage, the podcast. The captain comes on my podcast all the time and he follows you. And I'm like, oh, that's super cool. And you're like, I didn't even know he was following me. You need to catch up on you because he's like a huge true crime podcaster who follows you. And you're like, I didn't even know. I don't follow who follows me. I know. Well, I'm really bad on I'm like a bit phobic of Twitter. Um, I used to use it quite a bit, like sort of six, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm a much more like a visual person. So I prefer things like Instagram. Um, and also, I feel like I can never think of anything interesting enough or funny enough to tweet. And I have some friends who are very funny on Twitter. Um, so I'm like, they're, they're just, they can do it. I'll just kind of log in and look at it every so often. <laughs> I got to tell you, truthfully, how excited I was to read this book. Uh, a buddy of mine's Harold Schechter. He comes on all the time. And he wrote a book. Uh, was it Little House on the Little Prairie in a Slaughterhouse? And it was a short story about it. And I always give him crap. I'm like, dude, please write a full book on it. And then so when I saw you did it, you and you crushed every aspect of it. Were you familiar with Harold's book or anything? Yeah, so um, Harold's book is obviously one of the few kind of like longer pieces that existed on the Benders before I wrote this one, longer nonfiction pieces, um, because it's inspired lots of things like graphic novels and just historical fiction, um, because obviously it's such an insane story. Um, but kind of prior to my book, there's The Devil's Kitchen, which mm -hmm. was written by Fern Morrow Wood. Um, and then Phyllis de la Garza wrote a book as well. Um, and they're really like amazing, well-researched books, but they kind of focus on the direct period around the murders. Um, and I was just absolutely desperate to find out kind of more in the period, like 
from 1870 right up until kind of 1920 because I just thought there must be more source material out there connected to this because it was such a massive thing um, and I had never seen anyone kind of reference like legal correspondence or anything like that um, and then obviously while I was researching this book they have all of that at the Kansas State Archives they have boxes and boxes and boxes of it and we're talking literally thousands of bits of paper you know, some of them are like telegrams, some of them are pages and pages of written statements. Um, and I was like, oh, this has all been here <laughs> this whole time, just like sat waiting. Um, and I love that kind of historical detective work where you start to see certain names crop up in different sources. And then you can go on Ancestry.com and you look up like, oh, they were definitely here. You can find prison records. Um, so it's very satisfying when you kind of piece something together and work something out. Plain Detective, because this is your first book. You worked as a bookseller. The internet told me that, and the internet never lies. So working as a bookseller, what surprised you the most about writing your first book? Was it going there and playing detective? Um, I think when I was a bookseller, I worked, because my degrees are in um, history, and my master's is in um, like uh, technology and history, and I focused on crime, like technology associated mm -hmm. with crime. Um, so I worked as a nonfiction bookseller. Um, so I sort of, I felt like I had a good idea of like what sold, um, what books people preferred to read in nonfiction, because obviously some people like more narrative driven ones, some people like more factually driven ones, um, like ones that are slightly more academic. Um, so I thought, oh yeah, this is, this is fine. This is going to be relatively easy. Um, I picked a topic where obviously there's a lot of kind of oral history, a lot of folklore, because I'm very interested in all of that. Um, and then you go into it, and especially if you're working on a topic where there's not that much pre-existing scholarship, um, and it's sort of all down to you, and you can't just check kind of with a, maybe another book. And also, I think for me, one of the bits that I found most rewarding was all the kind of Civil War history, um, because I had like a, a general understanding of the Civil War, um, but you have to get like really into it because it provides so much context to what unfolds in Hell's Half Acre. Um, and kind of reading all the stuff about the prisoner of war camps, that was really interesting. But I also knew that some people are very, very pernickety about the Civil War and spend their whole lives studying kind of one battle. And I was like, please don't <laughs> let me get this wrong. <laughs> How has the reception been? Because I'll tell you what's different about your book. You read a serial killer book, you know who the killer is, but the benders, the first page, you're like, the benders killed people. And then you kept everyone at the edge of their seat reading it. So how has the reception been for the book? Um, I think it's been really interesting. So there's been some people, it's, um, I knew that when it came out, there would be some people who were not that happy with it um, because it is such a, kind of specific case and lots of people have it as a pet case as you know like lots of people in true crime do they have cases that they're particularly attached mm -hmm. to they have their mm -hmm. own theories they've done their own kind of research so some people were like yeah I don't <laughs> I don't think this is right um but there's also been a really amazing response from people who've contacted me to say oh I had family in that area um, my, you know, I grew up in Kansas and we had a teacher whose surname was Bender and she used to tell us about her family members um, and all of like all of that kind of stuff's been amazing. And also people who just said, oh, I knew about the case, but um, I really enjoyed the history in the book because it's essentially a history book disguised as a true crime book. Um, and we knew that when <laughs> I was writing it. 
Um, but I felt like the history is so important to understanding kind of the context of the crimes. Um, and then, yes, yeah, some people have been like, I can't believe I've never heard of this. This is absolutely insane. Why isn't this talked about more? You know, why isn't there already 25 books written on it? Um, so, yeah, it's been it's been really interesting overall. Without playing spoiler alert, tell everyone who the benders are, because we're talking about the benders, the benders. Who are the benders? Uh, so the Benders were a family of four German spiritualists. Um, you've got an older couple, Ma and Pa, and then you've got a younger couple called Kate and John. And John actually goes by John Gebhardt. Um, the exact relationship between the family, we can't be exactly sure of. Um, I think that Kate and Ma Bender were almost certainly mother and daughter, mm -hmm. but I think it's much more likely that Kate and John Gebhardt, though they presented themselves as siblings, were actually common law married because um, the way that people talk about them interacting um, is a bit kind of suspicious if they're siblings. And one of the big rumors in the press at the time was that they were siblings, but they were incestuous. Um, and it didn't seem like anyone had thought, well, maybe they were just married. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the big kind of draw for the case for a lot of people at the time was the fact that kind of at the heart of everything was Kate Bender. Um, and she's a young woman, kind of anywhere between 18 and 25. She's described as very attractive. She's got this long red hair. She's got a little scar on her face. Um, and she kind of, when the benders turn up, all the men in the local area are like, ooh, <laughs> maybe we'll, we'll go and check out the farm and see if they need any help. Um, but she's also, she wants to be a famous medium. Um, so she goes around to local towns and she offers to speak to dead relatives. She offers things like magnetic healing. She tends to get quite good responses from men, um, women, younger women who are a bit more vulnerable. Like there's a young woman who loses her husband um, and Kate kind of senses her vulnerability and really hones in on her. But then this woman's mother-in-law is like back off my family I know you are a charlatan um so it's really interesting to kind of see how a woman like that is treated both by the community and then thereafter their crimes are discovered in the press she's called things like a witch she's called the devil of the prairie she's a vixen um and then there's a real debate going on about whether or not she was attractive um some newspapers describe her as like a hag um, whereas others really focus in on the fact that she was this kind of siren, like a proto-femme fatale. Um, and I think that, for me personally, is what really drew me to the case in the first place. Because it's quite rare, well, it's obviously extremely rare to have like a family of serial killers, but to then have maybe the woman, the young woman in the family kind of in charge of what was going on, um, like you just never really hear about. So... But how did you even hear about this being across the pond? Like, not only becoming so attracted to its serial killer family, which everyone is, but wanting to write a book about it. And again, it wasn't from the 1970s or 80s, the Manson family everyone knew about. We're talking about the late 1800s. How did you come across the story and what fascinated you so much to write a full book about it? Um, so I always kind of haunt my local thrift shops. Um, I've moved now, so they're not quite as good where I am now. But where I grew up with my parents, they have this one that always has like insanely good books in it. 
and I, and I did have it with me, but I'm not sure I put this huge kind of coffee table book and it's got like a blood red cover and it's called More Infamous Crimes. And it's like from the early 90s, someone had taped it together, like it smelled a bit weird, all of that kind of stuff. But anyway, I found it when I was about kind of 16, 17 years old. I get home with it and I start reading it and there's all manner of kind of really bad people and also very dodgy descriptions. Um, and opinions about these crimes but there's this huge kind of three-page spread about the Bender family Um, and it's got an amazing picture of the replica cabin that they used to have in Cherryvale Mm -hmm. with kind of the creepy dummies standing in the cabin um, and some hammers on the table but then it had kind of an illustration of Kate it had some of the crime scene photos Um, but again it kind of focused on the years between 1870 and 1873 which is when we kind of had the most information about the family. Um, And it just stuck with me because I was like, people must have known more about this. This is obviously such a huge part of folklore in Kansas. People in the local area, you know, all have their own Bender stories. A lot of them are relatives of people who lived in the area at the time. Um, And I kind of, I did my degrees. I started working as a bookseller. I then did some other kind of jobs which I was very bored by <laughs> went back to being a bookseller and then thought actually I just really want to write about this like I feel like I'm now equipped having done my degrees to like know how to research this and I did so the Kansas Historical Society have a website called Kansas Memory um, where you can look at lots of their stuff that they have in their archives they've digitized it and they had some bits and pieces related to the benders and I just thought well if these are there there must be more of them I will find it out (laughs) and obviously I was hoping desperately hoping for a kind of hand of god moment where I found like a bible that said where they went or a picture (laughs) of the family and obviously that that didn't quite happen But at the same time, I found out so much more than I ever could have kind of anticipated about like the other people who were involved with them, the families, the victims, all of that kind of stuff. So I felt like there's probably as much as I'll ever be able to find out. Um, But I know the man who owns the land now is hoping to excavate it. Um, So that will be very exciting. Um, I'm not sure what they'll find. Um, (laughs) And also it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly where the cabin was because obviously the land's changed. Um, But I think, you know, some people are hoping for more remains, um, but it would be nice even to find like kind of archeological indications of where the well was and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So So plain detective, you went out to Kansas, obviously. How was the reception there? Was it okay? Do they want to be known as a serial killer town? How was the reception when you start doing all this detective work? Uh, so the first thing we found when we went to Kansas was everyone was like, why are you British people here? <laughs> <laughs> when we were going through the airport, though, um, we flew into Chicago and then somebody was like, oh, you know, where are we going? We said Kansas <clears throat> City. Um, and they were like, oh, do you have family there? And we said no. And then there was sort of an awkward silence. And I was like, I'm a historian and we're doing a historical road trip. And there was sort of more awkward silence. And we just <laughs> went through. Um, but yeah, so the reception was really interesting. So people either knew exactly what we were talking about. Um, so we started in Topeka, which is obviously like north of Labette. Labette, where the crimes happened, is southeast Kansas. Um, so we started in Topeka because that's where the archives are. 
Um, and the archivists who work there were saying that the Bender material is stuff they get requests for all the time. People are always writing kind of little articles, children are writing school reports. Um, so it's very much kind of something that they're constantly pulling, especially photographs for. Um, when we went to Lawrence, we went to an axe throwing bar and a member of staff there knew exactly what we were talking about. He was like, oh, yeah, you know, my my family, they were in that area at the time. They were real estate agents um, and actually one of the first people who see the cabin after the Benders abandoned it was a real estate agent. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe it was you. Um, but once you kind of once we got to Cherryvale and Independence, it was really interesting um, independence is kind of very aware of its role in the history, but the crimes are most associated with Cherryvale. Um, and they have a long kind of history of both feeling like they should use the crimes to kind of bring in money for the town, especially now it's a very, very poor area. It's very difficult because of the way that agriculture is unfolded in the state. Um, and the Bender murders are one of the few things that bring people to the town. And they've got a great little museum um, and the staff there were really helpful. They were really lovely. But we kind of arrived. We looked at all the stuff on Louise Brooks because she's also from Trevor, which is very interesting. But the, <laughs> the guy was like, so you here for the B word? <laughs> and we were like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, kind of sorry. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but at the time we went, they just received some funding from a local university and they now have like a whole kind of area of the museum that's dedicated to the Benders um, because that's obviously why people come. Um, and they used to, as I said, have a replica cabin and thousands of people would come and see it. Oh, wow. Obviously it bought, it was a real kind of like attraction at the time it was there. It was in the town, then it was moved out of the town. Um, but then half the town thought, yeah, that's fine. It's an important part of history. And the other half of the town were like, no, this is totally inappropriate. All these people died. You know, it's just a bit grim. And I think, you know, there's so many places like this. We drove through Holcomb, obviously where In Cold Blood mm -hmm. is set. Um, and they, we sort of started driving down the road to where we thought the clutter house was. And then someone came out of a house and looked at us. And it was sort of very obvious what we were doing. So we just turned around and we're like, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, but it's really hard because do you capitalize on a tragedy um, or do you kind of pretend it didn't happen? And I think especially if you have relatives who are involved in it, that's obviously very difficult. Um, and they're by no means the only murder site that struggles with, you know, whether to basically capitalize on dark tourism um, but I think especially because it's such a poor area, it feels like more of a hot topic because it obviously is a revenue income. Um, you mentioned you mentioned dark tourism. I was you always right now people collect murderabilia and it always, you know, it's always like you said, 50-50. Should you collect anything? Should you be buying that kind of stuff? People back in the 1800s were taking there was extra train routes and people was like taking stuff from the thing. Did that surprise you that people back in the 1800s were into murderabilia? Um, not really. I think the thing that true crime podcasters are often asked is like, why are we all into true crime now? And then you look at obviously through my degrees, I knew that people have been ghoulish and obsessed with horrible things for a very long time. Um, I was surprised by the sheer volume of people that descended on the site. I mean, people came from out of state to see the cabin. And like you said, they put on these extra trains and then 
they'd stop kind of halfway down the track and then all the local people were ferrying people backwards and forwards and the cabin and the land was just torn apart for souvenirs um and a similar thing happens with Bell Guinness um and you see this kind of like need to have these pieces of history which then you know you put on your mantelpiece and you say oh these nails are from the Bender cabin and everyone goes oh I remember when that happened um Obviously, we can't really do that now. I think that's what's so interesting is that that kind of hands-on murder mania, if you will, has obviously, it's gone now because crime scenes are shut down. You can't just go and rip (laughs) apart a crime scene, obviously. Um, But it is really interesting because these objects in themselves become really important in family histories, um, in local folklore. Um, And I was hoping, so they they have the hammers at the museum which is kind of a weird thing to look at. The actual murder weapons, yeah. Yeah, and you're sort of looking at them and you think, oh, it's so weird to think that one, they were used to kill people, but two, that they were just also used for other stuff in the house at the time. Um, And yeah, I think, you know, they've got some nails that they think are potentially from the cabin, but I'd love to know where the bits of the cabin went. Um, and things like furniture and like is there a kettle that belonged to the Bender family in a house somewhere you know and they just don't know because it's just an heirloom that's been passed down um so I think that's really interesting I love earlier how you said it was a historical book you know but you lied and said it was about true crime even though obviously you talked so much about the Benders you did such a great job talking about the real estate there and this and that you know part fascinating me the most is when they cross state lines without playing spoiler alert other police agencies and law enforcement agencies were like, yeah, we're not, what are we getting out of it? That's what really surprised me. Like how the state lines just separated like good and bad. Was that, did that surprise you? Yeah. I mean, I think in a case like this, especially when the criminals involved are so high profile, like I can't overstate everybody knew about this. It was front page news for weeks in America. And there are newspapers in Paris and London and Germany that cover it as well. This is a big crime. Um, And I was really surprised that even though, you know, there is this kind of hoo-haring about who's responsible once you cross the state lines, I couldn't believe that there weren't, you know, there wasn't a sheriff or a lieutenant who was like, actually, you know, it'd be really good for me to just catch the benders. Then I can be a really famous kind of hero of the American frontier. Um, When you think about all the people involved in things like Billy the Kid, all these people are so famous. They really kind of go down in the pantheon of American history. Um, And I just couldn't believe that the Texas Rangers were like, "Uh, (laughs) no, actually. (laughs) And also that there wasn't kind of a really wealthy businessman from like Montana or even, you know, like Missouri who said, you know what, I'm going to fund this. Because obviously they had real issues funding the search and that's ultimately kind of why it was such an issue. Um, But nobody stepped in and said, I got this, don't worry. (laughs) So I don't know whether their reputation was so kind of brutal that people Mm -hmm. were just too scared. Um, Obviously in the book I talk as well about there's lots of wars with indigenous peoples going on at the time, which makes the panhandle of Texas especially very dangerous. Um, And there's just lots of people around and some of them are murderers and some of them aren't (laughs) and you can't really tell who's who um so I understand you're essentially potentially going out to die um but lots of people I think kind of were willing to do that to kind of get earn themselves a place in frontier history and yeah I was absolutely shocked that 
there was that level of disinterest, basically. Kate Bender's the star of the, of the book, obviously. Do you truly believe she was the whole catalyst of everything going on? Um, I personally feel like Gebhardt, John Gebhardt, her husband okay. slash brother slash whatever, <laughs> mysterious. Um, I think he, to me, they both, to me, feel like con men who worked as a unit. Um, obviously, they had kind of, they were each good at different things. Um, I think he was, uh, he, he was a bit less abrasive than she could be um he there's also this big question of whether or not he was kind of stupid which is what the townsfolk thought that she would kind of look after him but when you read um accounts by outlaws and law enforcement who interacted with him he very obviously was not stupid and that was kind of a performance that he was putting on um i think kate was someone who was desperate for fame she wanted money she wanted nice things um and her relationship with John kind of allowed her access to that um and they're obviously part of a wider network of horse thieves who were operating in the area at that time anyway and I think there's kind of I'd love to know really what she thought about kind of all the coverage they got in the newspapers because obviously if you look at Bonnie Parker she loved that that Mm -hmm. was a huge thing for her they used to collect all the newspapers that they appeared in and I kind of wonder if there was an element of that with Kate and John and then she realized that actually she would never kind of achieve the lifestyle she wanted and she's described as being very grumpy (laughs) about living on the open frontier um, by one of the men who interacted with her Um, So, yeah, I think it's probably kind of like a joint effort, but I personally feel like the violence probably came from him and she was just willing to be complicit in it because it allowed her to kind of fulfill some need that she had. They were horse thieves. They were killing people with money and yet they lived in squalor. That surprised me the most. Did they kill like to be thrill killers? Like I, I was really, as I'm reading this, it was one of the first true crime books that I'm reading that I'm like, why are they doing this? Like, you know why some people do it, but a whole family killing, killing people with money, stealing horses, and yet they lived in like despair. Did you have any idea like why that happened? Yeah, so I think that's another thing that's really interesting. I mean, we don't know if, we know that they were essentially targeting people with horses mm-hmm. um, and then they'd fence them up in places like Colorado um, and they'd take kind of things of relative value, but then some of the bodies are found with rings on and stuff like that. And I think that's also what's really captured people's imagination about them is that if they were killing for material gain, why didn't they live in better conditions? Although interestingly, Kate's always described as being very well-dressed. So perhaps they just viewed the cabin as kind of like an interim stepping stone and were not that concerned about its interior because they had other plans. Um, Because it's weird to think of people like well-dressed people living in essentially like a fly filled pit, um, which is how the cabins described by people towards the end of the time they were there. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I feel like somebody in that house liked killing um, and whether the first, you know, maybe the first person they killed was a crime of opportunity, Mm. as we see with lots of serial killers. um, And then they just found because nobody noticed that the person was missing or was interested they were like actually this could work you know we can just kill people coming through we can take the stuff off them it's much easier than robbing them and letting witnesses go um and that's obviously all about kind of how isolated and transient life on the frontier was but that is a big question i mean because if they were they're obviously serial killers but what type of serial killer (laughs) 
Um, and I think because we don't have anything directly from them, um, we're never really going to know that, which is, I think, also why people are so interested, because there's so much space for you to fill in yourself. You know, like, how did they end up together? Were, you know, did they kill for, like, was it, are they lust killings? Are they just material? It's really interesting. I wish I could know. <laughs> well, well that, that was my next question to you. Was it fun, first-time book, writing stuff with so many questions? We really don't know where the benders came from, because you don't just show up and kill people. So they probably did stuff before. I won't play spoiler afterwards, but the story has so many questions. Was that fun writing a book like that? Yeah, it's like fun, but also deeply frustrating. Um, <laughs> but I knew going into it that there were things that I wanted to focus on. So I did, you know, I did dig around trying to find, you know, are there indications of where the benders came from? We obviously know that they had cut, the older couple at least had come over from Germany. Kate is definitely, she was born in America, but we don't really know where. Um, but it, I kind of got to a point with that where I thought I could spend five years, right, just trying to work out exactly who these people are. And Bender's a really common name. So the likelihood is maybe they weren't even Bender or maybe they were Bender. But there's hundred. I mean, there's there's other Benders in the county that they're living at the same time that they're there. So it's very, very difficult um, to kind of work out who is who. Um, so there were questions that I knew I thought I could answer, like more information about the victims, um, because I think especially in older cases, victims just get overlooked because people think, oh, well, you know, we won't find out that much more about them. But actually these, you know, mostly men, then poor Marianne, um, they give a really good indication of the benders like behavior and modus operandi as well. And also why the community didn't necessarily realize what was going on very quickly. Um, but there are there's definitely questions I wish I could answer, but I also managed to ask and answer questions that I didn't think I would be able to. Um, any, so that was very uh, satisfying. At any point, were you a little nervous? Like I might not have enough for the book because like you mentioned the victims, the York family was so integral in you telling the story. Did you know anything about the York family? Because it kind of like it kind of tied everything together and it gave you a whole nother like avenue to go down. Did you know anything about the Yorks at all? So interestingly, when I first read about the family, there's kind of, and this is why 19th century newspapers are so hard to work with. They, there's massive, I couldn't work out initially whether how many York brothers there were, who was the York brother on the scene when the bodies were discovered, because they'll be like, it was Ed, it was Alex, it was Fred, it was John. And you're like, oh, these people don't even exist. But that's why resources like Ancestry.com are so important. And um, because obviously you can look at census records, you can confirm who was in the family and where they were. And then Mary York's account. So she's one of the victim's widows. Um, her account is very detailed. It describes kind of the dynamics between the family. We learn that she talks a lot more about William and how he was struggling in kind of the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, and then also her role in kind of holding the family together. Um, and then the fact that the family, the York family kind of just abandoned her at a certain point, which I thought was really devastating. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's that thing when you go through trauma as a group um, and obviously Alexander York holds a lot of guilt for the rest of his life because he does interact with the benders before they flee. And he says, oh, no, they're just silly German people. They couldn't be the murderers. And then obviously is burdened with that misconception for the rest of his life. Um, but there also, you know, his experience in politics, 
um, the fact that they all moved to Colorado. I thought they're a really interesting case study about what a kind of upwardly mobile family in that time period is like. Um, and also a family with lots of sons, a family with lots of very different sons. Um, and I, I was really excited to find out so much more about them because the, there's kind of two families in the book. There's the Benders and the Yorks. Um, and it's the way that they interact that kind of forms the spine of the narrative. And that's how I sold the book to my wife. She doesn't read a lot of serial killer books or true crime books. And I'm like, you've got to read this book. She's like, oh, give me a quick breakdown. And I'm like, a family ran a slaughterhouse and they were killing people. And this famous politician's brother basically goes missing. And the politician was sitting with the family. And I'm like, and the next day, everything's like, they're gone. And she's like, well, and so she's actually reading it now. And oh, yay. That, yeah. <laughs> So now writing this book, obviously you're going to write more books. Do you know, you already know your next topic? Do you want to stay in the same genre or what do you want to do? Um, so my, my, I, I know what I want to write about next. Um, and it's, I had just redrafted a proposal for my publisher. Um, and it's a bit, it's a bit later. It's very different. It's, um, so I have, along with kind of ghoulish things, I think it's kind of adjacent. I've always been really interested in the history of showgirls in America. Okay. Um, and things like the sexual revolution and there was a very fair there was a woman whose stage name was candy bar um and her real name was Juanita slusher um and in the kind of 50s and 60s she was one of the most famous women in america um she dated mickey cohen she went out with um being crosby's son she was very very famous um because she danced quite differently to a lot of other burlesque performers at the time she was also very young very distinctive face um, but she grew up in awful poverty. She fled home. She ended up being sex trafficked. She's considered to be one of the first porn stars because um, she appeared in a movie that like really kind of hit off on the underground pornography circuit. Um, and then she shoots her husband who's been pimping her out. Um, and she also has ties to Jack Ruby. So she's questioned by the FBI. Oh, wow. But she ends up going to prison on an entrap it's she's basically entrapped on a marijuana charge because she's threatening the morals of Dallas um, and they don't really like the way she's behaving she's very anti-authority because of mm -hmm. her upbringing um but there's an amazing article about her written by Skip Hollinsworth for Texas Monthly um and she just she's very funny as well she has this really incredible way of talking um and I just really fell in love with her um, and I was like, this is what I want to write about. But I also want to write about kind of the sexual revolution and po politics during that time in America. Um, so hopefully but it'd be very different, obviously. It's kind of similar in the way it's like how women are treated in the press when mm -hmm. they're considered to be criminals. Um, but it's much more kind of, it's much more the book I thought I'd write than the last one because I just love showgirls and like 1950s Vegas and stuff like that. So... It's another big road trip. <laughs> are you are you ready? Are you ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? Yes. Favorite true crime book of all time? Uh, it has to be in cold blood. Oh, and Killers of the Flower Moon is also oh. absolutely incredible. Any did anyone approach you about maybe doing a movie or a series on this book? Yeah, so I've actually sold oh. the options oh, congratulations. Well, the book to New Regency. Um, so fingers crossed. Uh, hopefully it will appear on screen at some point. Well, I'm going to tell you this. So I, I'll name drop Eric Larson. We just had lunch a few weeks ago and he said the worst thing just happened to him. You know, um, uh, Garden of Beast and uh, Devil in the White City, they bought yeah. options on. He goes, the best thing is they're going to keep 
when they keep renewing it, you just keep getting paid. So they actually finally bought, they took it away from him. Devil in the White City, Hulu's making it. But in the Garden of Beasts, they said that they, he just keeps rolling. So if you can hold on to that a little bit, you make some money on that. <laughs> well, Lee Child, we saw an event with him where he was like, he made so much money on just option renewals that he put all his children through college. And it was like, you know, 15 years before it got made. He was like, I don't care. I got so much money. <laughs> Wait, that's the exact line because uh, I think Leonardo DiCaprio or Keanu Reeves, one of them is involved in Devil in the White City. Yeah. And I asked Eric Lawson, like, did you ever sit down with him? He's like, no, and I don't want to because they paid for my kids' college. So that's fine. So there's the same exact line he used. Yeah, I think it's one of the things people don't realize. Like I was explaining to one of my friends, like this option will obviously run out. Mm -hmm. Like maybe it gets optioned by the same company again, you know, just roll, 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 roll. So it really is a way that like authors do make money kind of on the slide. (laughs) So I have a lot of actors on and a lot of authors on, a lot of athletes who uh, I asked them their favorite piece of memorabilia. So while researching this book, did you get any memorabilia from the vendors at all? Anything a keepsake from writing your first book? Um, so I was given an envelope that's from the 1990s. Um, and it has, so the town, Cherryville used to have a vendor day. Um, and every year there'd be a competition to design a stamp, um, and which would then go on the envelope. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was given an envelope with the stamp on and it's kind of it's very like crude children's drawing of like Kate and the cabin and the hammers. Um, and then in it, it's got the directions that Mike drew um, to the murder site on a bit of paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my my favorite physical thing. My favorite kind of, I guess, ephemera is um, when I was researching outlaws, I was looking for this one specific outlaw trying to confirm that he existed. And I was on Ancestry.com and I found a prison record and it was William McPherson. And then on the bottom in pencil was scrawled Missouri Bill. And I was just like, oh, my God, here he is. Here he is. This is the person I've been looking for. Um, And that was kind of my favorite, like, major breakthrough. Um, I obviously will never own that because (laughs) it's in a database somewhere. But I have it saved on my desktop as a reminder of just how exciting that moment was. And last thing, because the internet says, are you a big shooter or archer? Because the, the internet went back and forth. So are you a big shooter? Is that what it is? Um, so I, we, I'm a member of a rifle and pistol club that's just down the road that's mm-hmm. existed since, I think, 1905. Um, but we went to shoot black powder guns um, as part of the research for the book because I really like, I have to touch things <laughs> before I write about them. And we just really enjoyed it, never left. I picked up archery, so I shoot a 28-pound recurve bow, um, which is, like, one of the best things to meditate with because you just can't think about anything else. It's so specific. Um, my partner shoots a lot more. He does, like, practical shotgun and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I like to shoot a 38 underlever when I'm not shooting a bow. Uh, but I'm more interested in kind of, like, the replica historical firearms, mm-hmm. obviously, as a historian. Um, but yeah, that's been really fun. So when we come back out to America, um, we'll definitely hit up some ranges. <laughs> so this because obviously there's there lots of stuff you can't shoot here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think my partner's hoping to shoot some competitions as well. So. Oh, really? Very yeah. interesting. Listen, this was an absolute blast. It was work. It was worth waking up at 6 a.m. on a Sunday because I was dying to do this. I loved your book. And not that anyone needs it, but give the plug because this is one of my favorite true crime books. And again, it was very Eric Larson-like where it wasn't just crime, 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 morbid. It was crime the whole entire time frame, which I loved because you don't hear about that stuff, the real estate prices and law enforcement. So it was such a different book. So congratulations again and give the plug where everyone can get it and follow your funny Twitter site. 
<laughs> might not so funny if you just say. Um, so you can, if you're in the US, I think you can get it through anywhere. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore, I know you can order it in. Um, and then in the UK, it's kind of similar. It's like Waterstones. I'll always plug Waterstones because that's where I used to work. Um, but basically anywhere you like to get your books. Um, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's my name, which is S-U-S-A-N-J-O-N-U-S-A-S. Um, yeah, don't expect any exciting <laughs> tweets from me. <laughs> But you can follow if you like. Thank you for doing this and stay cool out there, okay? Thank you so much. Talk to you later, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.